These days, political rhetoric can be bombastic and explosive. Elections turn on expressing deep-seated fears about one's opponent. But what happens when rhetoric turns into actual violence? Find out today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. I am your host, Leslie Skousen, and today we are going to explore a little-known yet shocking event in Chicago history, the Pineapple Primary. In 1928, a Republican primary for the state of Illinois dissolved into chaos in Chicago. In the six months before the primary occurred, the city of Chicago and parts of Cook County experienced at least 62 separate bombings in a concerted attempt by Chicago-area mob to intimidate voters and politicians during the lead-up to the election. By the end, 15 people had died, and among them were two politicians. This event became known as the Pineapple Primary, as grenades were called pineapples in the local slang. How is this not a part of our historical narrative? We learn in school about the long-held, sometimes deadly struggle for certain groups to win the right to vote. The struggle for women lasted for 80 years, and the story of African Americans is a long and torrid one. But violence at the polls, designed to intimidate and even murder candidates, seems to go against everything American-style democracy stands for. First, some context. It is no accident that this time violence occurred in Chicago during the 1920s. Prohibition was adopted in the United States in 1920 after a majority of states ratified the 18th Amendment in 1919. At the time, the temperance movement cheered its passage as a major victory for women and children. Alcohol had contributed to silent sufferings of domestic violence and devastated families where a head of household might spend the paycheck on booze before bringing it home to buy food. Yet what followed was an infamous spike in crime. Mobsters, like Al Capone, began extensive underground industries to create a black market of liquor. Through the Through a mixture of secret trade routes, payoffs, and violent intimidations, alcohol only temporarily left American society. In the absence of legality, quality suffered, and violence became a major part of life in some areas. Surprisingly, many local police and politicians supported the efforts to provide alcohol during prohibition. Not everyone viewed alcohol as the major drug with terrible social side effects. This attitude allowed the Chicago outfit to expand its power. Though criminals and violent, they were not always taken to be gangsters. Stories tell of Al Capone receiving cheers when he attended public events, such as a baseball game. He gave his money generously to charities and to struggling families. His reputation was not clear-cut, but much more complex. Perhaps this explains why one of the most violent moments in our nation's democracy has been glossed over. By 1928, Chicago had grown into the center of Prohibition's illegal rum-running scheme. Much of this was allowed due to the spike of corruption under Mayor Big Bill Thompson, who served as mayor of Chicago during the implementation of Prohibition. Mayor Thompson had encouraged the spread of illegal alcohol to meet demand, while taking a generous cut of the money. Yet charges of corruption had led to Thompson stepping aside during the 1923 election. Democrat William Dever served a term instead, and this mayor had begun to cramp the style of Al Capone. 
Mayor Dever has zealously supported the new anti-alcohol laws, much to the dismay of the drinking public and the control of mobs around the city. So when the mayoral term was up, Al Capone sought to do whatever he could to support Big Bill Thompson in regaining the mayor's seat. Capone even donated a quarter of a million dollars to the 1927 effort to have Thompson re-elected. Thompson emerged victorious and even suggested that he may allow saloons to reopen during his second term as mayor. However, there was a problem. No matter how determined or corrupt one mayor may be, even a mayor of Chicago, no politicians rule in a vacuum. We may associate Al Capone with bloody massacres, but Chicagoans at the time saw him as a sort of Robin Hood figure, bringing booze to a thirsty community and giving donations to underprivileged families. Mayor Thompson and Al Capone could work well together, but not if the 1928 Republican primary put new reformers on the ticket for statewide leadership. Of special concern was a primary challenger named Charles Deneen, a former governor of Illinois and a sitting U.S. senator at the time of the primary. If elected, Deneed would lead the entire Republican Party of Illinois into an era of anti-corruption reform. Good for Chicago, perhaps. Bad for business. Capone and similar gangsters realized that they had to manipulate the vote in order to retain their favorable political atmosphere. And this is where the boat began to approach dangerous white waters. Charles Deneen campaigned by focusing on the amount of sheer violence going on in Chicago during Prohibition. Thompson, allied with Capone, suggested that these reports of violence were completely fabricated, that the Deneen supporters were setting small fires and throwing bombs themselves in order to make the Chicago establishment look bad. Violence and threats of violence began to receive national attention. Meanwhile, these rumors of force correlated with a sudden spike in violent offense in Chicago itself. At first, this went unnoticed until a Prohibition-era Chicago politician became the target. Diamond Joe Esposito became the victim of a drive-by shooting on March 21, 1928. The front page of the Chicago Daily Tribune blared, Slay Diamond Joe Esposito, as it described the death by shotgun from a mysterious limousine. Although an elected official, Diamond Joe was better known for his participation in racketeering, prostitution, bootlegging, and illegal union manipulation. Such activity makes it less surprising that this politician was the victim of a street-side murder. But that's not all. The Chicago Tribune described him as a close ally of the Deneen Republican group, and even suggested that the fated politician had been warned of the danger that an alliance with Deneen could bring. Curiously, Esposito had indeed hired two bodyguards, both of whom survived the drive-by shooting without a scratch. Within days, one of the three witnesses to the shooting was found dead, himself shot to death. The two bodyguards had been in custody during this period. They were then cleared of all wrongdoing, if only for lack of evidence and no one was charged with the slaying of the politician from the 25th Ward. Five days later, Charles Deneen was threatened personally. A bomb went off on his front porch, destroying the front door and shattering several windows. Fortunately, the senator was not at home at the time. Only five minutes later, mere blocks away, Deneen ally and state attorney candidate John Swanson also narrowly escaped an assassination attempt. For reasons unknown, Judge Swanson had left his residence at 11.20 p.m., missing the bomb's explosion by minutes. 
The Chicago Tribune even reported that the judge had heard the blast from his car as he drove away from his home and pulled over to discover if he had a flat tire. The U.S. Marshal working in Chicago submitted a request on March 30, 1928, for an additional 500 federal marshals to observe polls during Election Day. On April 4th, the Washington Post wrote an article titled, U.S. May Protect Illinois Voters at Impending Primary, that included a demand for more poll watchers. Soon enough, 3,000 representatives from the Illinois Bar Association were deputized to stand as political watchdogs, protecting all citizens and their right to cast a vote in the primary. All these precautions were helpful, but not perfect. Expectations of votes cast were lower than in previous years. In favorable neighborhoods, Capone's men were seen encouraging potential voters to vote their way. He did not campaign in areas where Thompson was expected to lose. Instead, the neighborhoods were targeted in a different way on Election Day. On April 10th, career bomber and Capone lackey James Bell Castro focused in particular on the Chicago wards where Thompson was losing support. Various voting polls exploded, injuring dozens and killing at least 10. One Deneen poll worker, Arthur Taylor, was kidnapped at the polling station in Austin and beaten almost to death in the middle of the day. His picture appeared the next day in the Chicago Tribune, covered in bandages but alive. Among the dead was a promising young African-American lawyer. In the 20th Ward, a black candidate named Octavius Grenady was running against a mob candidate nicknamed Boss Ellis. Grenady offered a platform of equal rights for African-Americans in a predominantly black ward. His chances were good. He was a popular candidate. If only he could get the vote out. On the primary election day, Grenady traveled via car to cast his own ballot. As Grenady stood at the closing polls, a gunshot rang out, barely missing him. He jumped into his car and sped away from his assailants. A chase ensued. The unknown assassins began to pepper Grenady's car with a machine gun, injuring the candidate as his car crashed into a tree. Stuck between metal and tree trunk, Grenady's body was, quote, torn apart by a dozen slugs, in the words of chronicler John Kobler. In the aftermath of this very public murder, four police officers were implicated in helping to organize the death of a rising black politician. No one was convicted. Grenady's death capped off a bloody and violent primary season. 62 total bombs were thrown during six months before voting day. At least 15 people died, if not more. Politicians, witnesses, bystanders. Two of these deaths were politicians running for office. Surprisingly, this event did not make Al Capone happy. In spite of the bloodbath, Deneen's Republican alliance were largely successful in their primary bids. Judge Swanson, the man who left his house late at night for an uncharacteristic midnight drive and essentially missed his assassination, was elected to U.S. state attorney. Al Capone's team lost. What is particularly shocking is that Thompson's political machine ran a tight ship. He and Al Capone had the most money, the most volunteers, and the most community organizers. But violence takes its toll. Both successful and unsuccessful assassination attempts had an effect on the electorate. The wrong people stayed home, so to speak, and the very people Capone hoped to scare away from voting came out in droves. In spite of the deaths of two opposing candidates, Octavius Grenady and Diamond Joe Esposito, Deneen's candidacy won.
The following year would witness the most well-known event of Al Capone's career, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where a group of mobsters submitted to an inspection by a team of fake police officers. With the mobsters lined up against a wall to be frisked, the fake officers then opened fire with machine guns, killing the rival group instantly. This event was captured spectacularly on film and published in the newspapers, perhaps explaining its infamy. But surely we should be more familiar with the violent machinations of a mobster on primary election day? The American identity is based on an ideal of democracy. Suppressing the vote in any fashion should not be tolerated. And it is with that in mind that I close this week's podcast by advocating that you register to vote in the next election. Fear no pineapple primary and honor those who have not been eligible to vote in the past by casting your own vote today. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.